Brothers and sisters, you're all very welcome um, to this conversation that I'm going to have with Dr. Sean O'Connell and with our colleague Dermot Connolly. Um, we have certainly had our fair share of very tragic losses at the bar. And this is a talk that we hope will be helpful to you um, to look at whenever is convenient for you or whenever you feel the need to do so. And um, feel free at any point after watching this to contact myself or Jeremid or anyone else um, that is on the Bar Council if you want to talk further about anything that we discuss um, here today. So um, first of all, Dr. Sean O'Connell, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, we were hoping that maybe you could just help us with a couple of things. Um, first of all, maybe processing um, when when difficult things happen in your workplace and personally, and and also I suppose how to deal with um, the type of profession that we have here, which is um, quite stressful at particular points, and just what we can do to better manage that and to better address that. Yep, let's go into that actually. Um, what we'll do is we'll kind of talk about two different parts as you're suggesting, the, the grief part and maybe the coping part as well. Um, I um, have some slides that I can send on to you, but I'll guide you through it here um, just so that you can use it and fire away with any questions as we continue on. Um, so I'm hoping you can see that. Um, but in terms of grief and coping, I suppose a lot of people um, aren't maybe fully sure what grief is. So very generally speaking, I just wanna let you know that it's essentially an emotional reaction to the loss of someone. Um, and I think a lot of our conversations nowadays is gonna be mostly from a Western perspective. It's not the be all and the end all, but just so that you know, if you're listening to this, there's lots of different ways of um, grieving or experiencing grief. It really does depend on your upbringing and what choices you make, what culture you're in. Um, so it's really important to know that there's not just one set, let's say, model. Um, and I'm pretty sure you guys may have heard of the Kubler-Ross or maybe a grief cycle or the five stages. It's bandied around media and TV shows. Um, and very briefly, it talks about the stages of denial, going into anger, going to bargaining, then into depression and acceptance. And it's seen as these very set steps. Um, just, I suppose, from my own background as a psychologist, I just need to let you know that this is quite contested. There's mixed reviews on this. Um, and I would hate for you guys to assume that there's only one way of doing this. Um, but if you are experiencing grief, it's just to let you know that you may be feeling uh, a bulk of these feelings or one or two of them. And it could be anything from avoidance, feeling confused. Um, a lot of people go into shock. If you find yourself quite active, um, you may find yourself doing activities rather than going into um, emotions. It might be a nice substitute for you while you recover and manage. A lot of people do get angry as well. They find themselves getting really irritated. And what a lot of people don't know is that anxiety um, is often uh, underneath that anger as well. Um, and I suppose the latter stages that people go into then would be around trying to find meaning, trying to really barter or bargain around how something has happened, trying to comprehend. It's essentially the brain's way of just trying to make sense of things. Um, and then once the, the brain, the mind or the self, whichever you prefer has, I suppose, acknowledged on some level about what has occurred, there has been cases where someone goes into a sense of helplessness, feeling overwhelmed, even goes into flight mode. Um, so kind of wants to escape or uh, make a, a drastic change. And eventually there can be a sense of acceptance where the person looks at different options um, or moves on as well. 
Um, and you'll see down the bottom, or I can follow it, you know, there is generally an importance for you to have enough information uh, at your own pace, that you do have emotional support, and that there is a certain level of guidance as well, which I suppose recordings like this can help you out with that. Um, so I do have a question like, is that what it is? Um, or does it look uh, something a little bit like the next picture here, which is essentially not the five stages, it looks like a complete mess. Um, there's lots of squiggles all over the page in terms of the different stages of your experience of grief. Um, and I, I, you know, personally, and I suppose clinically as well, I prefer this, this image because we are looking at different stages that go up and down and left and right. I could go into all sorts of details about complex grief where, you know, the grief is pathologized, but I don't think we need to go down that route. Your experience is your own. Everybody grieves in their own way and everybody has different levels of contact, whether it's someone close that they've lost um, or uh, a colleague or otherwise. Um, so just so you know, there, there are a whole bunch of uh, factors or there's a whole bunch of uh, impacts that can happen when you're in grief. Uh, you may not know that you're in grief. Um, there are different centers within the brain that light up. And um, if any of you heard of the, this experiment of feeling ostracized, uh, very briefly, um, the participants were uh, sat down and they have a, a cap of electrodes placed on them to monitor brain activity. And they have a computer game in front of you where you have to pass a ball to one player. That player passes to another player and passes it back. And you press the space bar on the keypad and you keep passing the, the ball around. And at one point, the ball stops being passed to you and it just passes between the other two computers, let's say. And what they found is that when this happens, that center of the parts of the brain that light up are the parts of the brain that feel pain. So we know that something like a loss, feeling detached, feeling ostracized, uh, left out, uh, disconnected, will light up different uh, neural networks within the brain, predominantly around your pain centers. So it's just to know how powerful something like grief can be on your own system, both psychologically, but also physically. So we have the, the more obvious one, which would be stress, but then there can also be tension. You may notice that you're feeling it in your shoulders or you may feel it in your stomach and there could be other areas Sean, as well. Yeah. Can I just ask you there as well, you Go know, because it. sometimes we there's a, a numbness that comes with, with something that, uh, you know, that tragic that might happen or some difficulty, uh, you know, be it personally or professionally. And, you know, is, is numbness kind of a, a factor as well that um, may be a, a symptom of grief, I suppose? Oh, completely. Um, I suppose image-wise, what I usually have is when would you ever see those films where you know something explosive happens and the, the ringing in the person's ears. Um, I'd often talk to clients about this this kind of experience and the numbnesses in the same way it shuts down experiences. And to be honest, I think it can be a very clever way of managing. Um, it's the body and mind's way of kind of numbing out pain because the the self can't handle it right now. Um, but it's not something to be extended. Um, and by that, I mean finding different ways to numb out pain. Um, with grief, it is really about kind of tolerating that type of pain when you're ready. Uh, and we'll talk about some resources later on, but certainly there can be a sense of feeling numb, um, even asking yourself, like, why aren't I being really upset right now? Um, there can be a whole range of factors, but it can also be predominantly shock as well. Um, so those are, there's a definitely factors in that. Um, and even, even around that as well, you may feel restless, you may feel tension, and there's lots of different hormones running around the body around this time as well. So you may feel adrenaline or cortisol stress hormones, which may want you to be more restless or want to get up and do things, be very active. 
if your upbringing or your culture is that you have to be seen to be doing things, um, you may very well be the person who's maybe organizing um, different things for other people and maybe not focusing on yourself, but very practical things. If you're male, there's a stronger tendency for you to be very much focused on getting back into work, getting ahead in the game, these kind of things, which long-term potentially can be unhelpful. Um, another two uh, things that people really don't recognize when they're going into grief is that sense of fatigue. Um, and I think that's probably the difference between the brain and the body in terms of muscles, that we don't realize how much processing the brain is going through right now. So you may feel like you've done a whole workout uh, for several days. Uh, and uh, I suppose the other part is that your immune system might be a little bit more compromised because of these hormones and the stress running around in the body. Very briefly, there is another term around the broken heart. Um, essentially, it's extremely rare, but something to keep an eye on. Um, where a severe amount of stress builds up in the body. Um, now, these are very rare. It's usually when there's multiple deaths uh, for one person in any one, uh, I suppose, environment um, where the ventricles fill up that little bit extra. Um, but if you're noticing any uh, symptoms, if you're noticing anything that's physically, I suppose, upsetting, it's always a good idea to check in with your GP as well. So, you're probably asking around now, how do we cope with this? How do we manage this? And as I said before, there's no right way of doing this. And there's no perfect way of doing this. You're going to do it in your own way. And um, if you are trying to cope with grief at the moment, uh, personally and clinically, a really helpful way of managing this is going into your rituals or maybe your own culture or your own traditions. Um, definitely in an Irish context, it's about noticing what happens within a wake, what happens around the funeral, um, what happens amid your colleagues or family members as well. Um, it can be your own personalized ritual as well, maybe writing uh, a letter and you, you post it to somewhere and that doesn't have a location, uh, you burn the letter. There's a whole myriad of things that you can be doing um, if you find yourself extra affected by uh, this loss. And uh, uh, as, Sean, yeah. I think the, the, the rituals and the traditions, uh, you know, I suppose in normal times, mm. you know, the, the wakes being from Donegal and um, the wakes are very important still yeah. in Donegal. And, you know, that's not um, a feature that we have at present because of COVID. Of and similarly, you know, in a workplace, ordinarily people would get together um, and remember someone that that um, has has passed. And, mm. you know, so that's, I suppose, difficult and I suppose we'll we'll look at ways maybe at, at how to work around the restrictions that we're we're in at present. Oh, completely. Um, look, uh, I've been looking at uh, death and rituals for a few years, um, predominantly through what's known as the death cafe. And what you hear within that is lots of different types of rituals. But especially now, when when there's a pandemic, and we, as you said, we may not be able to do those specific rituals. Um, there is the, the online, I suppose, kind of Zoom calls. They're definitely not the same as in person. Um, but, it, you know, there's definitely scope and space to brainstorm around what could be done as well. Um, you know, whether it's socially distanced or it, it's something where there's, uh, I suppose, a variant of it online. Um, but something that I, I do need to mention is just, you know, sometimes in around these times, people kind of lean towards alcohol or fast food or they withdraw quite a lot. Um, it's just something to keep an eye on. Um, so I would be limiting or avoiding a lot of alcohol, drugs, lots of lots of fast foods, withdrawing quite a bit, uh, or making big decisions. And something, Aoife, maybe you want to mention here, but I have in quotes and an asterisk on it, is the overworking. Um, I suppose I'm coming from a baseline of, of stating that overworking would be working more than your typical, let's say, nine to five. 
um, and I understand from the profession that there is a, a lot of overworking regardless. So it's just something for maybe you guys to keep an eye on, like what is your baseline, what is your norm, and can you have that or reduce that and give yourself a bit of space? Yeah, I think um, Dermot would probably agree with me that certainly, um, so this is being recorded in July and July is obviously uh, probably one of the most horrific times of the year at the bar, um, you know, ordinarily um, combined with COVID and, um, you know, mm. multiple applications coming into court now um, because the lists are reopening again. So yeah. it's very easy to fall into the overworking, um, you know, and it, it is much more stressful obviously and then dealing with other you know um, aspects like you know grief at losing somebody it's um you know it's untenable to be trying to do it all i suppose i absolutely agree with you there um Aoife. um it's a way of hiding as well by occupying yourself the whole time i mean it's the same as any compulsive behavior if you're working all the time you're not really dealing with the issues and sean I, what I, i'd really love you to address is is the need for kindness to oneself during these times when you're grieving. Um, you often get on this rat race of, I should be further down the road from this. It's six months, it's a year, it's whatever it might be. And I'm still struggling with it. And, and somehow we're a very self-critical uh, group of people and we internalize all of these things and don't show it to other people, which is absolutely a dreadful uh, recipe for, for coping. So I wonder if you could kind of signpost us in some way as to how to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, you you kind of, you said a buzzword there in terms of self-criticism. I could talk to you for days about that, but um, maybe that's for another time. Um, I do think when you're talking about kindness, it's absolutely massive. Um, one, I suppose, approach that I do think is helpful is using the image of, you know, how you work around grief. So in a lot of cases, we imagine it as kind of like, if you imagine a ping pong or a tennis ball in a box, a lot of people assume through a critical lens or perfectionism lens that that needs to, um, that box of managing that, that tennis ball of grief needs to get smaller and smaller and that we make it disappear and we, we put it back into memory and it's something of the past. But if anything, what we know uh, from personal clinical experience is that you make the space around that grief larger. So if you can imagine it being in a cargo box, you get a bigger box, you make more space for it. And how you do make that space is through kindness towards yourself, kindness towards other self-care, trying to get a bit of a balance back, but not, not a rigid balance. Um, so that's, again, those reminders is that you're cutting yourself some slack. You're doing it in your own way, but trying to lean towards compassion rather than kind of rigid schedules and things like that. And I suppose the need to recognize that in other people as well who are going through um, the process is important for our colleagues and the for sure and like for anybody listening as well like you know just ask yourself the question like are you comfortable with talking about your own version of loss or the loss that you may have just experienced um can you talk with colleagues about that would you mention it in passing um if you were meeting up online or if you had the chance to have a social distance coffee or the like would you mention it to them and if not would you talk to family and friends like that's a really big question if you're not um, I would be encouraging you to talk to someone about it. Um, sometimes people prefer a complete stranger, and that might be the, the psychologist or the therapist or consultant colleague. Um, but it's, it's, it's vitally important that you would be talking to someone about this, um, again, in your own time. And, and I suppose that might be where the consultant colleague program uh, comes along. It, it's absolutely 
totally enlarged, totally confidential. Um, the call logs are erased at the end of every um, person's holding of the phone. So nobody knows who's ringing in and it's a perfect space to, for active listening. Um, so that might be a, a, a source of help for client, or colleagues who don't want to talk to people face to face. And there's a, a list on the website of all the people who are involved in it and you can approach them individually uh, or avoid them depending if you know them you might want to go to somebody you don't know at all um but it's a service that that, that could help in this situation i think and it's a great option as well because it's your peers as well whether you know them or not it's your peers so um the it's not even likely they will know about what your experience is um you know just in terms of of the work itself but um it, it sounds like it's a it's a nice space to as you said to be actively listened to um, and especially if there's other things going on, like uh, whether in their personal life or career. I think somebody on that line will know what it's like not to yeah. have the resolve to go out and post those envelopes, even though you've signed them, you just can't bring yourself to do it because you're, you're uh, coping very badly with the situation. But exactly. so those, um, those features will be known to people and assistance can be gosh, you know? <laughs> Which is brilliant. Um, so look, I, I might just talk to you briefly just around, um, you know, some statistics and what you kind of need to know. Um, what you need to know is within your culture as well. Um, there are resources that we'll talk about at the very end of this. So if you are impacted by um, some of the statements here, um, just know that you have that support that's readily available. Um, but just in terms of kind of grief and coping with someone, like if, if someone has completed suicide, um, it's just to know that the suicide rates are quite high. Um, males are three to four times more likely than females to complete suicide. Um, the highest group of suicide in terms of males are in their mid-50s to mid-60s for women, mid-30s to mid-40s. And I suppose the main question here is to kind of recognize what is suicide, what leads to suicide. Um, and just in your own mind right now, be thinking like, what are some of the factors that you would recognize and in colleagues, if that was happening. Um, and it's just to answer some of those questions, and um, there can be a lot of precipitating factors. At the same time, there may not be many precipitating factors, but just so you know, there can be external circumstances um, within the person's training, um, ongoing. There is a statistic, although it's in, in based in the States, that up to 40% of um, people coming out of their uh, initial training um, have depression. Uh, it's about noticing that there can be different life events that are happening for the individual, whether it's being let go of a job or starting a new job. Um, there could be competition, but also the person could be questioning their identity, their role within family, within colleagues, and otherwise. Uh, identity is a big one that plays a feature in your profession as well. Um, in terms of the internal experiences, you know, it could be around how you think of yourself, uh, how you've had a persistent low mood, which is essentially more than two weeks. Uh, and you may also, as you said earlier, you may want to avoid pain or, and that could be emotional or physical. Um, no one wants to be in emotional or physical pain. So I suppose functionally would make sense that you'd want to kind of get out of that pain, but there's tons of other ways of managing that. Um, and that's about linking with a professional, starting maybe with consult a colleague or otherwise. Um, I suppose on the other side, we have the more reactive factors. So someone is already in a mode of depression. They may have a lot of unhelpful thinking, like there's no way out of this. Um, or they can't think of other resources um, uh, and similar. 
there can also be stress. And uh, what, when we talk about stress, we don't mean having a bit of pressure. We mean that there's long-term chronic stress. It could also be an acute response. Let's say a case didn't go in the way you'd like or something big happened within your profession. Uh, and that can ricochet off your mental health as well. And a really, really big one um, is substance abuse. Now I have listed depression, stresses and substance abuse because they are the top three factors that lead to suicide specifically in your profession. Um, so substance abuse can lead to impulsivity, poor thinking, mood swings, which are, uh, I suppose, actions that contribute towards suicidality as well. So it's just to really be conscious of those factors. And if you maybe know of a colleague who may be in one of those mode, modes, it could be important to reach out to them. So just Sean, in terms of reaching out actually, to them, unless you have any questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, that was going to be my question. Yeah. Uh, you're already going there. I suppose, um, you know, it's, it's important to, to think of those, you know, in terms of our own lives and whether any of those points re resonate with ourselves, mm -hmm. but also how do we, I suppose, approach somebody because, um, you know, we are all self-employed here and, um, you know, we have a very distinctive um, and unique workplace. And how do you start that conversation or how do you broach that? Because, um, you know, people can obviously be defensive if they're not open to um, talking about things and just what can we do in those circumstances? Yeah, and, and I know from previous conversations, the especially in terms of self-employment, um, myself and uh, a good chunk of colleagues within psychology were self-employed as well. So we do know that it can be quite isolating. Um, I suppose, let's say fortunately for us, we do, we've put in the training and the skills to know when something's up, we may not always get it right. Um, but we do have a foundation of skills that are the E more than likely wouldn't have um, because it's not in, within your training. So within here, um, what's really important when you're noticing that within within colleagues is it's important not to be looking towards blame. And I'll give you some examples of that in a second. Um, support is often required, um, but the, the person uh, may be um, neglecting maybe their work or they're mentioning that things are sliding a little bit. Um, or if you're in a larger, um, I suppose, kind of community, maybe things are being dropped or there's less care taken. And you may even notice that through maybe emails or, or the like. Um, and that could be a, a signifier of, of extra and additional stress or substance abuse. Um, I suppose with the individual, it's important to look at maybe some brief goals, some immediate realistic goals, um, because often, uh, I think, Dermot, as you said, the stress can build and then the self-criticism comes in, uh, particularly around the work and how it's completed, what gets left behind. You can't leave stuff behind, the pressure, the competition. Um, those are a lot of factors that leads to someone feeling very overwhelmed. Um, and unfortunately, when, when someone is in a critical mode or perfectionistic mode and the pressure comes on, it leads to more criticism um, or it can even lead to avoidance where the person becomes less productive and more critical and has more pressure at the end of the day. So offering hope is key. Um, that's the key statement about talking to them. Not necessarily about positivity, but hope, about different resources, different coping mechanisms do feel free to share a story of your own. Um, and maybe that's where Consult a Colleague comes in as well about similarities, uh, prompting of different supports. Um, or if you happen to know, or maybe you'll ask if they're in ongoing treatment, um, that could be something that would be important. So have you linked in with psychologists or even a coach um, or have you linked in with a Consult a Colleague? And even something like saying, well, I've linked in with it before and they're great. Um, so it could be even something as simple as that statement. 
asking them if they want really important there i think um just uh, you know um people might be concerned about showing weakness uh, and mm. i do say that in uh, the the um quotes because i suppose people sometimes view um, the need to go to a counsellor or the need to yeah. uh, talk to somebody about problems as weakness rather than a strength. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I suppose it's it's breaking down that taboo and that um, you know that it's not something um, it's not a badge of honour to to kind of bear the brunt of of um, problems on your own rather than um, looking for help. Yeah. That's an interesting point, Eva, because if we were doing an advice on proofs in any case, we would absolutely point to the appropriate expert to get us over a hurdle or to deal with a particular problem. Why won't we do that in our own lives? And I think that's really telling. Um, we, we do it for every other client um, and we should start doing it for ourselves and for our colleagues. Yeah. Do you know, you, you beat me to it. Um, I think that's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. Um, you know, you, you'll, you'll know the different experts to go to, but when it comes to mental health, um, I think as Eva said, there's a taboo around it. Um, you know, look, look at the other, the flip side of this in terms of, let's say, mental health or physical health. Um, if you want to, you know, emphasize and amplify um, something that isn't going your way within physical health, you probably see a physio um, or you might go to the gym or you do some gentle exercise. And if something wasn't quite fitting there, you may go to another expert or you might, might get a personal trainer or it could be something, um, I suppose, bone related. So it's, it's exactly that. Why not go to you know, again, on the flip side of that, in terms of mental health. and just, you know, like, uh, you know, there is the consult a colleague, and if you felt it was something further that you, you needed, there's psychologists, there's therapists, but I suppose in my line of work, we also know it could be coaching, um, and I often find that people experience coaching very differently, or treat it uh, very differently when they hear about it, um, as opposed to counselling, and there's less of a stigma associated with it, um, more than likely do the, the kind of sports mentality, um, but there's nothing wrong with calling that calling it that either um so I, I do think letting people know about that 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 information is there is important um, and it, it really you know the phrase the problem shared is problem halved um is is important uh, and as you said if that was a case or if that was kind of a um i don't know you probably wouldn't call it a group project or a group task um it would be shared you would focus on what's necessary you would get peer support so it's about kind of asking yourself right now, why not do the same if you haven't been for your mental health? Um, look, just really briefly, it's always helpful to have a, a couple of different things around depression. Sometimes the person may not realize that they have depression. It's a characteristic, characteristic of depression to not know you have it in some cases. So it, just in your own mind, as you're listening to this, um, could you list out some factors that you know that maybe aren't as obvious if someone is depressed or you have depression? Um, so some of the things that probably aren't the best to be mentioned to your colleagues, if you're noticing they're depressed or low is saying things like, ah, snap out of it, get over it. I'm not saying you would, but sometimes people do. Um, or a common phrase you hear is like, ah, just pull yourself out of it, you know, kind of move on, um, you know, a new leaf, things like that. Um, kind of an Irish response, isn't it? Are you yeah. grand? <laughs> you're grand. Oh, I've, yeah. I've got some words to ban later on. I'll show you those now. Um, but um, sarcasm, you know, often we, we try and play things off, especially as you're saying, yes, in, in the Irish context, it's like, ah, you, you make light of it. Or I suppose traditionally say, ah, we go down to the pub, which, you know, <laughs> the chats are more important, but unfortunately, um, alcohol is a depressant. So that could probably not be the best thing to do. 
Um, if anything, it's good to go for a tea or a coffee or go down to the cafeteria. That's what's most important. Uh, how could you be depressed? You're making X per year, you're on this panel, you're doing that, you know? Exactly. A, a reluctance yeah. to acknowledge that it could happen to, to, to everyone else. Actually, yeah, like let's go, like there's a point there. Um, if you're looking at the slides, you'll see it. But, you know, even if someone is saying, Asher, how could you, how could you be like that? You're not that. I often compare it to um, if you're a parent or if you know of anybody's parent and the child comes in after school, or maybe you've had this experience yourself and says, uh, you know, I, I failed my maths exam. I'm really stupid. Nine times out of 10, your go-to response is no, you're not. So essentially what you're doing there is you're denying or dismissing that the person's experiencing feeling stupid or feeling judged or feeling shame. So we often go into a fix-it attitude, which, Dermot, as you're saying, is sure you can't be depressed, you can't be low, sure you have everything or you're earning X amount or you got that brilliant case and you managed that. It doesn't matter. It's, it's definitely, um, it can happen for anybody. And it's why we need to be so aware of these different factors. Um, and just briefly, the culture often, and in a lot of cases, and especially within your profession, is kind of the fake it till you make it. So it's just keeping an eye on that mentality and trying to opt out of it as much as you can. So briefly, things to watch out for. And if you want to jump in on this one as well, it's you may notice people maybe have stated something passing or explicitly, maybe like, ah, I might not be here next week. Or, um, you know, you wouldn't really miss me anyway. Or, you know, I'm shutting everything down because... There's not much left for me after next week. Um, things that are is something very explicit, like, well, I'm going to um, have a few pints, um, take, you know, 20, whatever the drug is, and, uh, you know, pass out and hopefully not wake up. Things like that are, are a massive red flags that need to be dealt with straight away. And that may be calling their next of kin uh, or calling the GP or the guards. Um, being, being, if you notice someone is on mood-altering drug, drugs, it's important to keep an eye on them. If they're talking about losing their sense of purpose or their identity, um, maybe they've lost some, something really uh, important in terms of the case. Or if they have been talking about feeling trapped, which was a big one over the last 18 months, especially with COVID and the pandemic. Um, or if you've noticed them feeling extra angry, irritated, irritable, um, or you're noticing them being extra impulsive as well. Um, Males in particular, when it comes to suicide, can be quite impulsive. So it's just to notice that as well. And just, um, I know it's not a pleasant topic, but it's just something that you need to know in the back of your minds as well. And Sean, just yeah. um, on the loss of identity, I mean, you know, that's a big part of when, when you're at the bar, you know, it's a big part yeah. of your, your identity. And I suppose just how to, um, to make sure that it doesn't become your only identity as well because obviously if, yes. if something goes badly in a particular case then it can have huge ramifications because if you're wrapped up in what you do um like how do you I suppose have a healthy um balance between the two or a separateness I suppose generally I call it a fusion if you're fused with your identity if you're fused with your profession it's the be all and the end all um, but we know that there's lots of other things in our lives that are uh, as important. Um, so it might be family, uh, it might be friends, it might be education, um, it, might be, um, it might be health, mental health, it might be a hobby. And it's really important to also focus on those. Um, your career is a percentage of your life, not all of your life. Um, and that's just about having a healthy balance. Um, I think the buzzword uh, nowadays is the work-life balance, but it's what we really mean here is that you kind of 
recharge on all aspects as well. Uh, the danger is, uh, I think, Eva, as you're saying, that if you have all your eggs in one basket in terms of the workplace and something maybe minor or something large doesn't go according to plan, we don't have backups, we don't have resources. So that's what's key there. So very briefly, um, I'm just a question for yourself. Would you ignore probative evidence? Um, so, you know, if you're having a, if in your own experience, is there a lack of concentration? Um, is there an increase in your own forgetfulness? Um, are you missing things? Um, are you noticing that physical, um, you know, physical or emotional pain is trying to be avoided? Are you noticing some tension, restlessness, fatigue? Um, these are things that are not only related to uh, grief, but they're also things that are related to chronic stress. So there is an overlap there, and it's really important that you keep an eye on those things because they're incredibly valuable um, data, valuable information that you need to use. So if you are looking at the slides on the right-hand side, it's so important that you develop your own self-care toolkit. That could be something literal or mental, um, something like noticing that you need to take time out, um, having rest, having balanced rest, a balanced diet, keeping an eye on regular exercise, reducing your caseload, which is often the trickiest one, and making sure you're meeting others. And of course, counseling. So therapy counseling, um, psychological consultation, um, those are massively important. Um, and we've got the consult a colleague, which I'll show you as a resource in a minute as well. And Sean, um, just about the, the self-care toolkit, um, mm -hmm. I know that there are some phrases that um, just make people check out. And I think self-care can sometimes be one of those phrases. But yeah. I mean, if that's something as simple as, you know, maybe going for a walk um, and, you know, on your way home so that you actually check out physically from work before you make it home or, you know, self-care is any number of different things. It's just a particular tools that work for a particular person. Yeah, and I, I'd encourage people to really kind of flesh that out as well. Um, so if you're hearing the word self-care now, I would go and look it up, get some support on it, make a defined plan for when you're noticing maybe you'll feel quite low or stressed, because that says that there will be times where you may feel really low or will feel really stressed. Um, so self-care, um, yes, it's about the walks, but if we were to go a little step further, um, it is not just about the cups of tea and making sure you're okay. It's being extremely explicit. So uh, making sure you're taking time out. I know there's a lot of, uh, when you're talking about self-employment, um, often we can lose the run of ourselves and maybe not take time out, um, not taking annual leave. Uh, those things are really important. Making sure you're getting uh, checkups, making sure you're linking with other people and being extremely boundaried about that. The number one thing that you're missing out on uh, with self-care is boundaried work, boundaried self-care. Um, you know, when it hits a certain time that you call it and that you leave. Um, the, there's often uh, what gets mentioned is the pride, the badge of honor for staying really late in work. Um, I can tell you it doesn't serve you well. It may do in the short term, maybe one night or, or two evenings. If that's happening regularly, that is a big red flag for us right now. And briefly, words to ban, I said I'd get onto it. Um, how are you doing? Okay, fine, grand. Uh, Asher, you know yourself and it is what it is. If you hear any of those words, uh, I don't care if you make it a gimmick or not, but I want you to talk to your colleagues about this and say, ah, we, I was listening to this recording or I was uh, listening to this discussion um, and we said, wouldn't it be great to ban those words? And I just want to check in with you. How are you really doing? How are you really getting on? Um, you don't have to tell me too much, but, you know, let's do away with the kind of the, the Irishness of the grand and fine, if that's OK with you. And the other side of that is, I suppose, when you ask the question, how are you doing? 
you know, that you're actually wanting the answer rather than the okay, fine. Don't, don't let it go. Like yeah. if someone is saying, hi, yeah, grand, how are you, grand, grand, bye, bye, bye. Um, there's lots of different gestures you can do, like pausing, stopping, um, even eye contact. Something that you know will be a little bit different than it's, you know, asking how someone is, asking how someone is, isn't the same as saying hello. It's something very separate. And I think, unfortunately, we've become too fast paced and we've fused with that instead. But it is very different. And, you know, even if you're saying kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really asking, are you okay? You know, um, you know, are you a bit stressed at work or otherwise just asking and then sussing it out from there. In terms of uh, links or also with any questions, um, if you're interested in looking at some of the stats, the NOSP or um, the Samaritans, Pieta House, and the HSE as well, they all have different services that you can use. Um, and those are both online and on the phone and by text. You know, there's lots of different mental health programs you can use. Um, if you have a go-to psychologist, a therapist, or even a coach, if you're really not feeling well as, and you do know that you need some support, it is reaching out to your next of kin. Um, and as a backup, it's your GP or even going into A&E in your hospital. Um, do feel free to contact myself as well in the Institute of Psychology um, or I have my email on screen there as well if you need. Um, but the main thing is that you do reach out. Um, what I'll often say to uh, my own clients, if they are feeling suicidal, um, and obviously this is within a professional and confidential mode, is that I will challenge them and I will almost dare them to say, look, challenge me on the skills. When you do go to someone for extra support, there are tons of skills that can be used and can be employed with you. Um, so I guess what I'm saying within that is there's loads, there are thousands of coping skills before anything else needs to happen next. So it's just having that awareness at the back of your mind as well, in case you may be in that mode. That's brilliant. Um... I suppose, Jeremy, I might ask you, um, you're obviously one of the volunteers on the Consult a Colleague panel, and I think you have yes. been for a few years. I suppose, can you, can you give um, anyone who's watching this, I suppose, an overview of, of um, I suppose, when that service is, is good to use and, you know, that it's not just for acute cases, that it might be particular stresses in a particular moment uh, that it might help with. If you could just, um, I suppose, give well, your well, it's, it's run by barristers. Colleagues of yours are actually manning the phone 24 hours a day. There are two uh, people doing it at any fortnightly period. And the first thing to, to come to terms with is absolutely confidential. The, uh, the operatives don't discuss cases with each other. We get trained once a year or so. Um, no details are recorded. No details are, are, are communicated. So it's totally private. And as I say, when you get the phone, the call log has been erased, so you, you, you can't know who's run the, uh, the service. And as, once you accept that it's confidential, it can be used for anything thereafter. So if it's I can't cope with paperwork or you're into any heavier issues, they can all be discussed. OK, it's more of a signposting um, sort of process, because obviously we're not qualified psychologists, psychiatrists or, or grief counsellors or anything like that. So it's very dangerous to take. Uh, advice from people who aren't um, skilled in that area. But what we do know is where to go and who you can be refer referred to. And sometimes just talking about it is enough to get you over that um, hurdle and to challenge your kind of perception that, oh, it's too much, it's all me, I'm the worst in the world, and it's, it's pointless. That's not really ever a good sort of summation of, of anybody's situation. There's always help out there. 
And even just talking about it might be enough. And if you have to go and talk to somebody else, go and talk to somebody else. And I think I said it earlier on about the advice on proofs. Um, you would absolutely direct your client to look for a psychologist or an architect or a plumbing consultant to discuss any aspect of a particular case that you had. But why wouldn't you do it for yourself now? And, and this service carries that. I think there are some 15 volunteers on it. Um, now, I mean, bear in mind that they're practicing barristers who will be working. So getting hold of them between half 10 and one and between two and four might be difficult, but you can call back. And there is, the list is published, uh, Aoife, so anybody whose name is on that is prepared to take a call directly using their mobiles. And you might want to do that because you know someone or somebody be able to say, such and such is sound, have a word with them, right? Or you might want to pick them up because you don't know them and uh, they work the other end of the uh, country, so they don't know your colleagues. And it'll never be a question of the um, uh, of your details being discussed with anyone. Absolutely not. And, and that's hugely important. Um, we've done a lot of training with the Dublin Solicitors Bar Association, who were many years ahead of us in this. And I think it's uh, Mary Rose Gerty, as she then was, um, pretty much initiated this in October 2017, I think. So it's improving. Um, you know, and it's just a good service if you want to use it, okay? Um, and it might be perfect for situations where people just know that they need some kind of help, but don't know where to go, who to call, uh, how to get there. And that's, that's something that Consult a Colleague can do. It can just give you information as well in one place. And the difficulties that you are experiencing are probably difficulties that the colleague has had themselves. And we'll understand what it means to say, I just can't face drafting a document, and I've done that thousands of times, I know how to do it, but just today I can't for whatever reason. Um, there could be any of those type of um, uh, uh, problems, and, and you will find somebody who's a practicing barrister is more likely to understand that than uh, somebody who isn't. And, um, uh, you know, you don't have to feel foolish, you don't have to explain um, to a psychologist or, or whoever, the exact scenario people will get to it very quickly oh yeah that, I, that's happened to me um now it's it's a listening service so it, it's not a, a kind of a google to sort out every problem that you want to load into it um but as i say talking it through might be enough and if not then there are places to go uh, after that and you will be signposted so um as i say it, it, it's 365 um there'll be somebody on christmas day who has the phone in their hand uh, and available to take um, to take calls, and it should be used more yeah. because not dealing with it is, is the problem, you know. Um, because then it just festers and it mushrooms into something a lot more. And early intervention and all of these things, I think you'd agree, Sean, is is uh, the key to resolving them successfully, problems successfully. So um, that, that's pretty much the the, the, the format of it. As I say, um, it won't be, you, you may well get an answer during work time, um, but somebody will call you back if, if, you've, if they've missed your call. And what I'll add to that um, as well, um, for, for those of you who don't know, I'm chair of the Equality and Resilience Committee, and anyone who feels like they do need, um, you know, a, a professional service um, and that they need um, assistance, but can't afford it or have, need supports in that regard, do get in touch with us. 
um, we will try to do whatever we can um, we wouldn't want that to be the hurdle and we'll do anything we can to support members um, so uh, as I said at the start uh, I'm always free um, to take emails or calls um, as is anyone else on council um, as well as the consult colleague volunteers so um, I think uh, that's a great place to stop and um, Dr. Sean O'Connell and Jeremy Connolly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, everyone.